You're on Nightlife. Now, look, who amongst you are fans of the English author Anthony Trollope? He wrote many books set in England and Ireland, the most well-known of which are the Barsetshire novels, and he visited Australia in the 1870s. He made a few enemies, actually, by writing a book afterwards in which he said that many of us were braggarts. He's got a very interesting story to tell it to you tonight. Our literary historian Susanna Fullerton is back, president of the Jane Austen Society, along with a few other hats. Tonight she's wearing a Trollope Admiration Society hat, I think. Hello, Susanna. Welcome back. Thank you, Suzanne. Now, I want to actually start with Trollope's mother. She was quite the character and there's a great story about her offending boatloads of Americans. So tell us about her. Yes, she was quite a woman. Uh, She married a a man who was almost certainly manic depressive. He was a lawyer, his business failed because he insulted all his clients uh, and eventually money ran out and uh, Frances Trollope or Fanny as she was often called decided she needed to do something to try and repair the family fortunes. So she went off to America and she tried to establish a a sort of bazaar, a shop that sold exotic goods. That failed. Uh, She was briefly involved in sort of establishing a commune and she was living there with a couple of her children and possibly a man who was her lover. But eventually she went back to England and she ended up writing a book about the Americans and she was not complimentary about them. So everybody in England purchased the book because this wasn't all that long after the American Revolution and they were a bit sore that America had dumped Britain. So they loved reading all these nasty (laughs) things about the Americans. And of course, the Americans all rushed out to buy it because they wanted to know what the nasty things were. So the book was a real bestseller. And Fanny went on to write many more books, including one of the very first industrial novels in England, highlighting the plight of of poor factory workers. Uh, And she lived to a great age. So she was really quite a remarkable woman. And I think her son, Anthony, felt, okay, my mother's been able to make good money from writing fiction. Uh, And she would get up early in the morning and write before she had to nurse children who died of TB and all sorts of other tragedies in her life. And I think Anthony felt, well, I can learn some lessons from mum. And uh, so Fanny's a very interesting Mm. novelist. I'd encourage people to read her books. So they are worth reading, are they, Suzanne? Yes, many of them are excellent. Uh, She's got a lovely one called The Vicar of Rex Hill about a very slimy vicar who might have inspired Obadiah Slope in Barchester Towers, uh, her son's novel. And uh, a very good one called The Widow Barnaby, uh, Michael Armstrong, The Factory Boy, and many others. Mm. Now, she wasn't particularly kind to young Anthony, though. He had a bit of a miserable childhood, didn't he? He really had a horrible childhood. There was a lack of money. He got abandoned for a while in England at a a boarding school. The fees weren't paid. Uh, In fact, on one day, he climbed up to the tower at Winchester College, where he was at school, and seriously thought of throwing himself off the top. Uh, so his childhood was very difficult. And in fact, his his early years as a young man were difficult. He uh, struggled to find the right job. He got, got into a little bit of trouble with girls he flirted with, and then their mothers sort of demanded he propose. Uh, and uh, eventually he managed to get himself a job in the post office, and that would really be the turn.
turning point for him, where he would start to settle down. Uh, he was sent to Ireland on post office business, and that's where he wrote his very first novels. And uh, he had a very distinguished career in the post office. Yeah, and he, in fact, invented something that uh, we might get you to tell us about later. You can, If you think you know what he invented, why don't you see if you get it? <laughs> something that everybody is familiar with. That's right. So going to Ireland, I'm imagining that at this time, this is seen as, as a bit backwards being the person who gets sent to Ireland because Ireland was very much looked down upon by the English. What, what did he see when he got there? Well, he loved the Irish and he loved working in the postal system. So he travelled all over the country trying to work out good delivery routes for letters and, you know, the best way in which post could be delivered. Uh, and he married a girl in Ireland. She was actually of an English family, but uh, I think that also helped to to settle him. And the other thing was that he took up hunting, something he adored all his life. In fact, when he came to Australia, he did try hunting kangaroos in the bush, but he didn't find it quite the same experience as chasing over English fields after a fox. And hunting is something that appears in many of his novels. He often has hunting scenes in his books. So this is when he started writing novels. These first novels were set in Ireland. Were they any good? They're reasonable. They're okay. not great novels. His very first one was called The McDermott's of Ballycloran, and you can tell from the title that's a very Irish mm. novel. I don't think the English wanted to read about the Irish. There had been so much in the newspapers about the potato famine, and I think in England they just felt we're a bit sick of Irish misery. We don't want any more of it. And Trollope's first novel is not a particularly happy one. So that really it made him no money. It, it was really something of a flop. Uh, his next one, called The Kellys and the O'Kellys, didn't do much better. He then tried his hand at an historical novel called La Vendée. Uh, I think he felt that if Charles Dickens had had a big success with uh, A Tale of Two Cities, maybe he could have a success with an historical novel. So he wrote that, and that was even more of a flop. It's a very poor novel. And then he took a long break from writing novels, and he focused on post office business, got on with doing other things. He had a couple of children. His sons needed to be raised. And uh, it was one day when he was back in England, uh, again on post office business, and he was in the beautiful cathedral city of Salisbury. And he stopped on a bridge where you can still stand there today, and he had a beautiful view of Salisbury Cathedral, that wonderful building mm. with that great spire. And he started to think, well, maybe I could write a book about clergymen, showing them not in their role as clergy, but as ordinary human beings, men and women with, you know, men with, with lusts and greeds and desires and problems and financial difficulties and all the rest of it. So he sat down and he wrote his novel, The Warden, which is the first of the six Barchester novels. It's a wonderful book and it did quite a bit better. That was followed up by Barchester Towers, another really great book. Uh, and at this time, his writing career took off. And, and I think he realised that novels with English settings were more popular. Uh, people loved the clergy characters, you know, Mr Slope and uh, Archdeacon Grantly and uh, the ghastly Mrs Proudy, a woman none of us would ever want to meet in real life. Uh, but really wonderful books. So he did a whole series of six novels on clergy characters and they're sort of interlinked and he was really the first writer in English to have recurring characters in his fiction. But I did read, Susanna, that actually his mother had done that. Well, yes, yeah, she'd done it to a much, much 
smaller right. extent. But he was he was really the first to, to have so sort of the a, whole idea a of a whole series saga of, of you know continuing characters popping up again and again throughout the the six novels. Mm. And then many years later, he did the same with the Palliser series, uh, his political novels. So instead of showing clergymen, he wanted to show politicians. And again, it's a marvelous series of six books, um, like Barchester Towers, wonderfully filmed by the uh, the BBC. Uh, and uh, they're, they're really great books. So if these books were so good compared to the ones that have been set in Ireland, I mean, what was it that sort of that, that tweaked that suddenly meant that he was writing great books, whereas he'd been writing mediocre books? Or was it just the Irish setting? I think he moved away from the misery. Right. And so a lot of his English books are happier. Uh, usually hero and heroine get together at the end and live happily Thank ever goodness, after, yes. as in a good Victorian novel. And I think he just found his niche in those English counties. He did occasionally return to Ireland as a setting. Uh, he would, you know, sometimes use Ireland for, for settings for later novels. And in fact, the novel he was writing when he died and remained unfinished called The Land League is, is set in Ireland. Uh, but uh, no, I think, you know, he just sort of found his niche. And from that time, there was no looking back. And mm. he churned those novels out, 47 of them in his lifetime, which mm. is no mean feat. No. Had the fact that his mother had also published books given him a leg up when it came to first publishing? I don't know, because his mother, we're not even certain she read many of his books. She never seemed to show any interest mm. in them. Uh, and he didn't use the same publisher as his mother. But I guess the name was known, mm. and that would certainly have helped to get him first published. But then those first few novels were dismal failures, really. So it was only because he persevered. that, uh, mm. And he was so hardworking as a novelist. He'd be up at five in the morning, busy writing, before going off for a day's work at the post office. He worked on trains as he travelled around England. He had a little portable desk. When he sailed out to Australia, he had a little desk built in his cabin and he wrote a whole novel en route to Australia. He started it when the ship left England and as it sailed into Port Melbourne, he brought the novel to a close wow. and wrote the words, The End. So as far as I know, he's the only person in recorded history to have written an entire novel en route from England <laughs> to Australia. And it's a very good novel called Lady Anna in which the heroine at the end of the book decides to move to Australia. Australia and start a new life here. Susanna Fullerton is my guest on The Writers Tonight on Nightlife View with Suzanne Hill. And we are getting a lesson in uh, Anthony Trollope. Now, I wonder if you're a fan of Trollopes. If you are, we would love to have you uh, join the program. one 800 222 You can talk to us via the SMS 0467-922-702. But even as he became successful, Susanna, he was still at the post office. And what did he invent? Well, he is responsible for the pillar post box. So when you post a letter in that red box at the end of your street, you can be grateful to Anthony Trollope for the privilege of doing so. In his career in the post office, he, he knew that in France um, there was some sort of box into which you could put letters. But at the time that uh, he was working there, you had to get to the post office before five o'clock closing if you wanted to post a letter. 
and Trollope thought, well, this box is a very good idea. So it was originally tried out in the Channel Islands. So Jersey and Guernsey have the very earliest post boxes. Oh, are they still there? Yes, some are. And originally they were painted green, but as time went on, I think they felt red was a better colour because mm. it stood out more definitely at the end of a street. And it was clearly a success in the Channel Islands, and so Trollope made sure it was introduced into Britain. And we still use those useful boxes today. Yes, and ours are red too, which I guess followed on from the English example. Very interesting. Now, he tried to stand for Parliament, Trollope did. This was an abject failure. It gave him lots of um, material, though, for his political books. Tell us about this, what happened. Well, he tried to stand as a liberal. There was still a lot of corruption in English politics at the time, which he reflects wonderfully in the Palliser series of novels. And uh, it was shown later that there was very bad corruption in that election. So Trollope lost the election and was very disappointed. But I think posterity can be grateful that he did lose because he put all of that political longing and interest into the Palliser novels, which begin with the book Can You Forgive Her and go through to um, uh, the the Prime Minister and the Duke's children. Uh, And they're all utterly marvellous books. I, I think they're six of the the greatest Victorian novels. So uh, I think we're, you know, we, as I say, can be very grateful that he did not manage to get into Parliament. But, but he spent an extraordinary amount of his own money on that yes, attempt. he had to, and you had to pay bribes, you know, you had to buy beers for the various, you know, voters. And uh, so all wonderfully described in his novels, but not a success in his own life. What do you think was driving him towards politics? Well, he once said that it should be the highest ambition of any Englishman to serve in the House of Parliament. So clearly he was a frustrated politician. But, uh, you know, he, he was churning out a, a novel a year most of the time. So he was kept very busy indeed. Had he actually got in, either he'd have had to give up writing some of his novels or he'd have been a pretty poor MP because he, he was too was busy with other things. was he still at the things. post office at this time? Well, eventually he gave up in the post yeah. office. Some He missed out on the top job and he was annoyed about that and he thought, right, I'm going to leave. Uh, and he was a huge traveller as well. He he travelled to South Africa and wrote a travel book about that, uh, to Iceland and, of course, oh. to Australia and New Zealand. And he wrote, uh, he came twice to Australia and wrote very interesting travel book called Australia and New Zealand. As you mentioned earlier, he was not always complimentary about Australians, but 95% of the time he was. Uh, The Australians couldn't forgive him for the small percentage that was not so nice. (laughs) (laughs) This is the bit where he called us braggarts. Yes, he said Australians were a little inclined to blow their own trumpets too loudly. And so when he came back after publishing that book, he got a rather cool reception. But interestingly, I think the only place in the world named for Anthony Trollope is in Australia, Uh, not too far from Sydney. It's on the Hawkesbury River just by Wiseman's Ferry, and it's a bend of the river called Trollope's Reach. And he picnicked there with a whole lot of dignitaries on a boat, and the little stretch of the river got named in his honour. So uh, another interesting Australian connection. Well, there you go. Now, do we have anyone who was from Trollope's Reach? Love to hear from you. Now, I understand the reason he came out here was that one of his sons had actually moved here, hadn't he? Yes, his youngest son, Fred, who never quite knew what to do with himself in England, decided to emigrate when he was only in his teens. He was like 16, 17 years old. And his father gave him some financial help. And Fred set himself up on a a farm up near Moree. 
and it didn't do very well. Uh, and so when Trollope decided to come out, it was because I think Fred had been asking him for lots of money and he thought, well, am I just pouring this money into a bottomless pit? I'd better come and see uh, what it's like. And uh, he spent almost a year in Australia. He travelled from Perth to Tasmania to Queensland. He went all over the place, checked out post offices, sat in, in <laughs> law, law trials, uh, went to the gold diggings, which gave him material for a very good book he wrote, a novel called John Caldergate, which is partly set on the Australian gold fields. So he really he didn't actually spend a lot of time with Fred at his at his uh, home, but he really explored a lot of Australia and all that went into the book that he wrote, which was really a book that was for anyone thinking of, of immigrating to Australia. Mm. So he told people how much, you know, a pound of beef cost and what sort of housing you could expect and what sort of schooling your children might have. And so it's it's a book that is rather dated now, mm. but would certainly have been very useful at the time for anyone thinking of making that big move to Australia. Mm. Okay, so we were braggarts, but what were the good things he had to say? Oh, he said had he been a younger man, he'd have upped sticks and moved to Australia. Uh, he felt Australians were wonderfully democratic. Uh, he was very impressed by the uh, enormous amount of meat that was available for breakfast, lunch and dinner <laughs> and that it was so cheap. Um, speculated about how Australians might one day manage to get that meat in fresh condition over to the other side of the world. Uh, he was impressed by the libraries, by the you know the legal system, by the fact that Australia had come so far in a short time with establishing a very uh, uh, a very good society yeah. here. Because this was in the eighteen seventies, I think yes. that, that he came out. So I, I think he came back the second time because his son was actually winding up. Said yes, said his son eventually realised that the station was just not going to work. But he spent the rest of his life in Australia. Mm. Uh, he married a local girl and had a large family of children. And in fact, Anthony Trollope's direct descendants live in Australia today. Oh. Really? Yes. So, do you know who they yes, are? Yes, yes. I've, oh. I've met a couple of them. So uh, they're not as as ardent about their great, great, I forget how many greats, I think it's three greats, grandfather's novels, as I think they should be. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I think they are also very proud to have him as an ancestor. So. Well, I, I noticed one of his grandsons became the 16th Baronet Trollope of, of Casewick, one of the Australian ones. So there were certainly some titles there. There still is a title. So the current holder is uh, Sir Hugh Trollope. So no, okay. sorry, Sir, Sir Anthony Trollope. He's, he's Tony. Uh, he doesn't have sons, and so the title will pass to the son of the next brother, Hugh. Uh, so and are these in Australia? These people, yes. So oh, st still here and and uh, using the title Sir. That sort of bypassed Trollope's immediate family and eventually sort of made its way to the family. So uh, um, yes, so the descendants are all in Australia today. Oh, there you are, uh, Susanna Fullerton is here. We're talking about the books of Anthony Trollope. Okay, so Susanna, if you've never read Trollope and you are thinking, okay, I'm inspired by Susanna, I'm going to give it a go, where do you start? Well, probably start with the Barchester novels, with the Warden and Barchester Towers. But my 
A very, very favourite Trollope novel is the third book in that series, and you can just read it on its own. You don't have to have read the other first two to enjoy it, and it's one called Dr Thorne. It's an absolutely marvellous book. It has, like many of Trollope's novels, been filmed by the BBC, but the film version was actually a bit disappointing. Mm. The film versions of Barchester Towers and The Palaces are absolutely wonderful, uh, and there's also a very good film adaptation of The Way We Live Now with David. Suchet playing the uh, very powerful, wealthy financier. So there's some wonderful Trollope on television, uh, which is well worth watching. But if you're only going to read one novel, start with Dr. Thorne. And the very best way to experience the books is on audio version. All six Barchester novels and all six Palliser novels have been read by Timothy West, who won awards for his reading. They are absolutely superb. He does all the different voices, the Irish accents, the Scottish accents, the servants, the aristocrats, they are a total joy to listen to. So get Dr. Thorne. Better than reading it for yourself. Better, better, than, reading wow. it, better than reading it for yourself. So get Dr. Thorne on audio, read by Timothy West, and you just go straight to heaven as you listen. <laughs> and any to avoid? I'm guessing these are the early Irish books. Yes, and there are a few that are a little bit poor. He wrote a very odd novel called The Fixed Period, which is sort of a futuristic novel. Uh, so... Um, he wrote it in the 1860s, I think it was, um, and it's, it's sort of set in, in the 1960s, so 100 years later. And rather interestingly, it's set on an island that he calls Britannula, which is halfway between Australia and New Zealand. And on this very strange island, there is compulsory euthanasia for everybody when they reach the age of 62 and a half because the society feels that when you get to that age, you have passed your use-by date, which I'm afraid I have obviously done. <laughs> you don't live in, in Britannia. <laughs> so it's a very odd little novel. But intriguingly, 62 and a half was the exact age that Trollope was when he died. Oh. So he suffered a, a stroke and uh, lingered on for a, some weeks, unable to speak or, or do anything much. Uh, and then he died, and that was the age he was when he died. So I can't really recommend The Fixed Period, although it's an mm. interesting idea. But most of his books are enchanting. Um, he's a very soothing writer. It's been said that he's one of the very best writers to take to bed with you at the end of the day because he's not so exciting you're going to stay up for hours feeling you have to finish the book and be tired the next day. But he's not so dull that you're going to go to sleep within a page. He's just going to <laughs> calm you down beautifully at the end of the day. And uh, he really is just one of the most calming, soothing writers. I also think he is wonderfully good with women. I think he's much better at creating female characters than his great contemporary Charles Dickens. He has a real understanding of women in his novels, and that comes through again and again and again. So there are many reasons mm. to read Trollope. But, I mean, Dickens is certainly much more famous these days than, than Trollope. Why, why is that? Well, he was even in the Victorian era. Dickens always earned more money than Trollope. His books sold in greater numbers, and I think Trollope was a bit envious of Dickens. In fact, he satirises him in his novel The Warden. So you can sort of see the jealousy coming mm. through. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, there is a, a huge nut. There's a very big trollop society in the UK. I know there are reading groups around the world that are making their way through 47 novels and his short stories. And uh, I actually prefer reading Trollope to Dickens. I think Dickens is probably the greater novelist in when it comes to technicalities and, and his skill as a virtuoso. But if I'm in need of a little bit of comfort or just feeling a bit tired, then Trollope is just a wonderful author to turn to. <laughs> Susanna, as always, thank you so much for coming in and uh, talking to us about Anthony Trollope in tonight's version of The Writers. Thanks, Suzanne, and I hope I've encouraged people to read his marvellous books. I'm going to go and get one because I've never read Trollope. It feels like a blank spot now, so I'm going to go and fix that, Susanna. So Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Susanna Fullerton, uh, president of the Jane Austen Society, a literary historian and a huge fan of Anthony Trollope. Nightlife with Suzanne Hill on ABC Radio and on the ABC Listen app.